And we are at the point in our service now where we like to pray together as a church for what God has in store for us. Uh, we pray corporately, that is pray together, because prayer is such an integral part of not only our own individual lives with God, but our life with God as uh, one church in the larger family of God. And so I would like to ask you to stand right now as a sign of our solidarity and pray with me as we come before our Father and seek his face as he has taught us to. Would you pray with me? Father God, we recognize as we come before you and as we have sung uh, this morning in so many ways that you are a God who is sovereign. You're sovereign. That means you are over and above everything that goes on in the world, everything that goes on in our own individual lives, the good things, the bad things. There are none of these, you tell us in your word, that has escaped your notice or your control. And so as we come to you praying, we pray to a sovereign God. It's important to remember your sovereign. So often when we look at the events in the world around us, they seem chaotic. They seem out of control. As we have already prayed for our Haiti team, Father, we think of the world around us and, and particularly those in uh, third world and poor countries in the Caribbean, Haiti amongst them, uh, Cuba, many parts of the Bahamas that have been struck by this hurricane that seems like a, uh, a force of nature that is merely uh, chaotic or uh, without guidance, without feeling, causing destruction, and yet we recognize that you are sovereign in your care of all of us. We pray for the people of Cuba, of Haiti, of the Caribbean, knowing particularly that in these days now and in coming days, in many ways are more catastrophic to the loss of life after a natural disaster than when the disaster strikes. Uh, these are the days when food supplies run short and clean water is scarce, where diseases like cholera and many others start to wreak oftentimes even more havoc than the initial hit of the hurricane. And so we pray for your protection. We pray for those uh, like our team and so many others who are there seeking to get medical and food and water aid on the ground to people who need it the most. We pray for their success. And we do pray for the Haitian people and for Cubans who are dealing now with the dark reality of life in a broken world. And we pray amongst everything else that takes place that many people would find eternal life even as they face temporal destruction all around them. Father, make your name great, and we pray that much greater life would be seen out of this death, and that in your sovereignty, you would bring that about for their good, for your glory. Father, we think of our own nation and our own community. Uh, here on the day of yet another presidential debate, we are reminded that we are in the midst of an election year a national election year that brings so many hopes and fears and emotions to the surface. We pray for our own participation in that as a church family, that we could be people who would participate recognizing your sovereignty, which would mean first and foremost that we participate. We don't disengage because of our feelings about the political process because we understand you are sovereign over it. And that frees us to participate and to vote. And at the same time, Father, we participate not as people who are looking to our government or to politicians to be our saviors, to fix what is wrong with the world around us as we see it. We recognize you are sovereign. And so we participate not seeking human saviors. We trust our nation to you and its political process to you. 
and commit to our belief in your sovereignty despite the choices of societies. Make us a people who acknowledge your sovereignty even as we participate politically. Father, we want to pray for the ministry of the gospel and churches around our community. We are very grateful that we are far from the only church in this community who serves you and seeks to uphold the gospel. I think of our brothers and sisters in Christ over at Calvary Chapel in Hillsboro, uh, with Pastor Rich and Samuel. I think particularly pray your blessing upon them as, as their Beaverton campus met uh, initially at uh, Southridge High School, but because of the decision of the school district last year, they've been evicted from that space. Um, being a district-wide decision, we know several churches that were using school facilities to meet were affected and are now scrambling for locations. Pray specifically for the new location that uh, Calvary Chapel has found for their Beaverton campus, that you would provide the funding, the resources that's needed to get that building up to speed to be used the way that uh, they need to use it, that you would bless the ministry of that church, that you would add to their numbers, and that more and more men and women would come to faith in Christ because of their ministry. Give them wisdom as they make decisions and encouragement in the face of setbacks that they may continue to reflect you. And finally, Father, we pray for ourselves as a church this morning that you would make us more today a people who recognize and live in light of your sovereign control over human history and the events of our own individual lives as well. Help us to be a people of perspective who recognize in everything that is taking place in our life and in the world around us that you have a much larger plan to redeem people for their eternal good and your glory. And that plan is unfolding. And that plan is the most important plan. God, let us see beyond the events and the feelings and the emotions of the day, whether those emotions are good or whether they are bad, to be the kind of people who trust that your hand is in our pain, in our fears, in our anxieties, and to be a people who experience trust in you and who demonstrate the sovereignty of God by our willingness to trust you and follow you in all things. And would you use that trust not only to sustain our faith as a people, but through us to point many others in the community around us to Jesus Christ because you have helped us live as a people faithful to you and your sovereign control. It is in the name of our sovereign God that we worship this morning. It is in the name of our sovereign God that we gather this morning. And it is the name of our sovereign God that we praise this morning as your church here at Harvest. And we pray that you would be glorified in that. And in our midst this morning, we pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Throughout its history, the church of Jesus has most often been a minority in its society, whatever society that may be at any given time. Uh, and what that means is that the gospel witness of the church of Jesus Christ throughout history has been what we might say prophetic in nature. Uh, not so much prophetic by predicting future events, prophetic in terms of speaking the truth of Jesus into a broader culture that didn't understand it, doesn't necessarily appreciate it. So a gospel witness in the church is always prophetic. We, we declare human sin. We announce that God is gracious toward us as people, even though we don't deserve it. And we announce uh, the gospel of Jesus calling people to repentance. All three points, human sinfulness and God's grace in the face of our sinfulness and the need to repent, all three of those points that have characterized the witness of the church throughout history are 
uncomfortable. They're offensive to many. And so, in order for the church to maintain its witness as a prophetic minority in any society, the New Testament is full of books and teachings in Scripture that were written to provide the perspective on God that God is sovereign and the confidence in God's, to elicit confidence in God's people that he is indeed bringing his plan about. Now, that's been the experience of the church throughout history and in most times in history and in most places of the world. Of course, a church is a more prophetic minority in some situations and less so in others. The perspective and experience of modern American Christians in the last, oh, 100, 150 years or so has tended to be something of an exception to that general rule in that we have been a little bit less of a minority in our society over the course of our nation's history than most churches have been in their societies over the course of their history. But it's not news to most of us that that is changing for us. And as the American church today, we be I believe solidly we need the same perspective and confidence in the sovereignty of our God, if we're going to faithfully execute the gospel commission in our time, that churches throughout history have needed in theirs. And today we start a whole new study, and it is a study in the New Testament book of Revelation, the Bible's final book. Now there's a lot of reactions that, that Christians often have when you actually go to the book of Revelation. Um, lots of responses come. Uh, excitement, cool. Apprehension, really? That book? You are aware there's 65 other books in the Bible. Like you could have picked any one of those 65 and I would have been happier than this one. Um, eye rolling, sometimes even fear. Revelation talks about big stuff. It talks about scary stuff and sometimes we'd rather not think about those things. Um, there's a little bit of humorous fear in, in the eyes and on the lips of a pastor friend of mine recently when I told him I, that our church was going to be studying Revelation uh, this coming year. The exact words that he said to me were, better you than me. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. And, and he was half joking, um, but only half. I, what he sort of meant was, amongst Christians, there are so many different sort of understandings of this book or, or, or uh, experiences of this book that often there's just a lot of conflict and disagreement amongst Christians about what exactly we're to make of the book of Revelation, that as a pastor, he felt like, I'd just as soon avoid all that. I got 65 other books to teach from. I'll go somewhere else. And in a not-so-subtle way, he was saying, what's wrong with you? And I'm really not sure. Um, I'll leave that to you guys to decide, but, but let me say this much, just on a, a quick personal note, is th this morning is just going to be sort of introductory. We are going to look at the introduction to the book of Revelation here in just a moment, so we will be in scripture, but as is sort of our custom, when we begin a new study of a new book, we like to sort of frame it and get our heads around what God intends us to get out of a book like this so that we can hopefully learn the most that we can. And by way of introduction, let me just share for a moment my own personal experiences with the book of Revelation. I was raised in a Bible-believing church, and so I was aware of the book of Revelation, but throughout most of my uh, teenage years, childhood and teenage years, I never read it. First time I really um, was exposed to the teachings of the book of Revelation was probably during my college years, and I thought, well, that's sure an interesting book. 
That's a little bit different than the rest of them. If you've read Revelation, as many of you probably have, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't had the pleasure of reading Revelation, just hang on. You'll find out what we're talking about here quickly over the first couple of weeks. But that was about it. I largely accepted uh, the perspective on the book of Revelation that I was taught by the pastors of my church and thought that was interesting and just sort of moved on. Of course, I was exposed to it a little bit more thoroughly in seminary where I did graduate studies in in, in theology in preparation uh, for vocational ministry. And and that made me think a little bit more deeply about the book. Uh, But as I entered pastoral ministry, to be honest with you, and and, and I started teaching the Bible in, in more regular and formal settings, To be honest with you, I found myself kind of avoiding teaching much on the book of Revelation. I may allude to it here or quote from it there, but never to really open it up and teach through it. And I have to look back and say, why was that the case? I didn't really feel particularly afraid of the book. And honestly, I think now looking back, the reason that I tended to avoid it is that I was a little bit afraid of some of the different differences in opinions that Christians can have about the book and some of the debate that might ensue. And my feeling at the time for many years was sometimes, although I'm sure that I think the book of Revelation has very important things for us, you have to get through so much potential distraction that I'm not sure it's worth the effort. I'm a little bit ashamed to say that now, but I'm just being honest. Like, do I want to even deal with all of the potential distractions that debates over fairly minor points can cause and pull us off the main course of what this book is trying to teach us? In other words, I saw the book of Revelation more as a a potential quagmire than a life-changing study. Uh, Fortunately, a a couple of years ago, I was challenged on that. I was at the Gospel Coalition annual conference in uh, April of 2015, so about a year and a half ago. And the whole focus of this uh, three-day conference, which was people from all over the world and certainly all over our nation were together, many of them pastors, most of them pastors and church leaders. And the whole theme of the conference was the doctrine of hope, looking forward to our eternal life in heaven. And so that was about a lot more than the book of Revelation. But in the context of that, several speakers, including, I'll never forget, John Piper at one point, who was doing one of the main sessions, sort of took about 6,000 of us pastor types who were in attendance, and he kind of graciously, if you've ever heard John Piper preach, you know he's kind of gracious. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a wonderfully winsome guy, but he's not afraid to call it the way he sees it. He kind of graciously took us all to task a little bit. And he essentially said this, You know, for so many years, especially in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, there was a lot of debate in churches around fairly minor points regarding the book of Revelation, and it was a huge distraction, and that probably wasn't super healthy. But then he said, in the 90s and the 2000s, our problem had been that people reacted so much to that that now we totally ignore teaching about biblical prophecy, and the pendulum's probably swung to the other side. And he essentially said, guys, it's in there for a reason. Teach Teach biblical prophecy. And I sort of took that challenge to heart. Maybe this is in there for a reason. And so, as my pastor friend said in so many words, what's wrong with you? I don't know, but here we are. The book of Revelation is in the Bible for a reason. God didn't put it there for decoration. He didn't put it there because he liked even numbers and he had 65 books and so he wanted a nice even 66. He put it there because there is a message here that he intends us to get out of it. And he says so right away. If you've got your Bibles, turn them open to the book of Revelation the very last book in the New Testament. We're just going to start this morning with the first three verses. I want to point out a couple of things. Let me start by reading this brief introductory paragraph to us. This is God's word. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is God's word to us. This is how he introduces the book of Revelation to us. And I want to start by just pointing out two significant things right away that sort of challenge my earlier understanding about the book of Revelation. First of all, right away in this introduction, he says that there is a promise that is contingent upon the second thing, which is an injunction, uh, an urging to do something. It's all in uh, verse 3. Blessed is the one. He starts out with a promise. Blessed is the one who... Dot, dot, dot. We'll get to that in a second. Blessed is the one. What is blessing? Is blessing good? Is blessing bad? Not a trick question. All right, that's good. We know this, right? Blessed is the one who reads this book. Christians, the Bible tells us, are, supposed, are going to be blessed by paying attention to what's in this book. Like, this is good for you, and it's good for me. God intends it for us. I have to admit, I wasn't so sure I saw that when I saw Revelation as more of a distraction to God's main message. That convicts me personally. Do I believe I'll be blessed? No, I believe we'll probably be distracted. Well, that's not what the Bible says. So maybe it's my understanding that's off. Maybe your understanding is off too. How do you feel about the book of Revelation? Do you feel excited about it? Do you feel confused about it? Do you feel frustrated by it? Do you feel apprehensive? Do you believe you'll be blessed by reading and paying attention to the words of this book? God says you will. That's where he starts. There's a promise. Blessed is the one who, what? This is the second thing, the injunction. Blessed is the one who reads and keeps, the end of verse 3, what is written in this book book. The blessing comes from keeping the words in the book. And to keep God's words is something that also, just like the word blessing, it's pretty clear what that means. We know what that means. The Bible uses the language of keeping God's words all the time. To keep God's words is to heed them, uh, to pay attention to them, to obey them. In, in short, to heed God's or to keep God's words is to live my life in a manner that's consistent with what God is saying. So I pay attention to what God is saying and my life is shaped by it. And the Bible says the book of Revelation is supposed to shape your life and my life as a Christian. Revelation isn't just full of confusing images or fine theological details to argue over. There are commands to keep in this book and truths that are to shape our daily lives. Revelation presents itself as a letter to local churches to be read and followed just like the New Testament books of Ephesians or Romans or Hebrews or just about any of the other books in the New Testament. These are letters that were meant to be read by churches and followed. Revelation is no different in its purpose, even if it is somewhat unique in its content and structure amongst New Testament books. So why Revelation? 
That's one of the most important questions I think I feel compelled to help answer whenever we start a new book study. Why are we studying this book of the Bible now? Why Revelation? In short, because Revelation is a letter from God to his people containing teachings that are to shape our daily lives. And if we allow our lives to be so shaped, we will be blessed. That's what God says. That's the assumption that we're going to approach this study with. Now, what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is just point out two key features of how the book of Revelation is put together. Both of them, again, are are easily seen in the passage that we just read. And if we keep them in mind, it will help us start to figure out what is admittedly kind of a confusing and strange book. So we're going to start by talking about two key principles that we'll have in mind sort of throughout our whole study. And then we're going to end by talking about the main message of the book of Revelation and how it probably applies to us in a modern American Christian context, okay? So two keys and three main messages to Revelation. Quickly, let's move through these two keys. First of all, here's two key features of Revelation. The first feature is that this book is highly symbolic. Uh, It's highly symbolic. That is, it's full of symbols. It's full of images. It's full of things that picture other things. Revelation is absolutely jam-packed with vivid and dramatic and even fantastical imagery. Here there be dragons. Seriously, there's a dragon in this book. Here there are stars falling from the heavens to the earth. Here there are many-headed hydra-like beasts and, and hailstones that are 100 pounds each and fire and blood that falls from the heavens. It's amazing, intense, wild stuff. To somebody who's not familiar with these things on a first read-through, it almost sounds like you're reading a science fiction or fantasy novel. It's really different than most of the rest of what you read in the Bible. And that's because that the way that you read any particular piece of writing is determined by the type of writing it is. Uh, Literature people would refer to this as the genre of writing. You know, there's poetry on the one hand, and then there's like prose on the other hand. You don't read a a poem the same way you read an essay. Uh, by, By the way it's structured, a poem is just designed to function differently, and if you try to read it straight, sometimes you sort of miss its real purpose. Uh, we can illustrate the whole idea of genre really simply. Uh, have you ever taken like a really popular pop rock song and just read the lyrics straight out loud? Sometimes, depending on the song, it's hilarious because it's almost nonsensical. You know, this is not a real song, but this would be very you know similar. You, you flip over the album jacket, you know, in the old days, or you Google it now in modern times. And you get the lyrics to this song, and you read it out loud. Hey, honey, listen to this top 40 hit. I love you. I love you so true. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh, baby. Ooh, I love you. Platinum record right there. That's Pulitzer Prize winning material. You're like, how could anybody like this stuff? Well, it's obvious, right? They like it because they're not reading it that way. It's, it's, it's not meant to be read that way. It was words that somebody put to a, a tune and to a beat and to a rhythm. And when you hear those words in that tune and that beat and that rhythm, it's a very different experience than just reading it straight, right? It, it's song lyrics. It wasn't meant to be read like an essay on the Gettysburg Address, right? 
you understand that when you come to a piece of writing, you have to figure out how the writing is meant to be read. Well, Biblical writings are no different. The Bible uses straight historical accounts. It uses straightforward prose. It uses poetry. And the book of Revelation is from a genre that doesn't actually exist anymore in the modern world, which is part of what makes it so strange to us. It's a genre that was around the ancient world. Um, There are many uh, non-biblical examples of this genre as well. It was actually very popular for a couple of centuries before the time of Jesus and for a couple of centuries after the time of Jesus. There were a lot of ancient writings in this genre. The book of Revelation is one of them. But nobody writes this way anymore. And we call this genre apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic just means revealing literature. It's it's a Greek word that means reveal. It's, It's revelation literature. Revelation is revelation literature. And like all writing, the genre heavily influences how it's supposed to be read. Uh, So one of the features of this genre is this heavy use of over-the-top symbolism. In in chapter 1, verse 1, I mentioned you can see this right away in the introduction. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants concerning the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. That word there in the original language, this was originally written in the Greek language, that word made it known is actually a word that means, in in this context it's pretty clear, it means he communicated by means of symbols. He communicated by means of symbols. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he communicated it to John by means of signs or images or symbols. Right away, the book sets us up to recognize we're in for a load of symbolism. In fact, the noun form of this word is what the gospel writers used to refer to Jesus' miracles. Jesus would do all these miracles, and the gospel writers kept calling them signs. You remember that if you've read the gospels? They don't call Jesus' miracles a miracle. They call them a sign. That action is a picture that points to some larger reality about who Jesus is. It's a sign. Well, here, Revelation is telling us that God is going to communicate by means of signs or images or symbols. Now, we do this all the time today. Uh, For example, you're driving down the street. Most of you look like you probably have experienced driving a car. Uh, You see a signpost. It's in the shape of a triangle. It's yellow, and it's got this little black stick figure on it with his knees bent. What's it mean? Okay, there's like 16 different answers there. This is scaring me. (laughs) Okay, we've got a remedial driver's education course starting at Harvest next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Actually, all the answers I heard were right. You were just saying it different ways. It means yield to pedestrians, right? And, and we know that. You know it means yield because that's what a, a triangle means. And you know it means uh, yield because it's a yellow triangle, and yellow is the color of caution out on our roads. Caution, yield to pedestrians, hence the stick figure. Funny, how did you all know that? There's no words on that sign. But we all know what the sign means. It's communication by means of symbols. And now there's an implication to this. There's an implication to this. We need to be prepared for a load of symbolism as we approach the book of Revelation. The very first verse of the book tells us how it wants to be read, how it's set up to be read. It's a book that's full of symbols. There are real things about the real world that God is communicating, but he's mostly not going to communicate them in a straightforward, woodenly literal, descriptive way. Revelation is going to communicate by means of symbols. 
This is part of the the differences of opinion that even Christians who love the Bible deeply have about this book. There's different ways of understanding how literal and symbolic is it. It's actually a very common interpretation to assume that even in a book like Revelation where there's a lot of symbols, we should always try to interpret them as literally as possible unless you're absolutely forced uh, into sort of a symbolic uh, type of interpretation, unless you just clearly know it's a, uh, it's a, uh, a turn of a phrase or a word picture or a symbol and you can't get around that. It's a very common approach to the book and I actually have great sympathy for that approach to the book of Revelation because people who approach it that way are usually trying to take the Bible as seriously as they can and trying to make sure we don't put any of our own personal meaning into the book that isn't really there. However, despite my sympathy toward that view, it seems to me to be a well-intentioned but ultimately misguided approach to the book of Revelation simply because it starts by telling us it's going to communicate by means of symbols and immediately that's exactly what it does from cover to cover. It is full of symbolism. So I would suggest along with uh, theologian Greg Beale that we should flip that interpretive approach on its head. We should interpret what we see in Revelation symbolically unless we're absolutely forced to take a specific image literally. And there is some literal stuff in there. But now, how do we do that effectively? If you're going to approach a book of the Bible symbolically, does that mean that people are just going to start making it up whatever they want it to mean on their own? What's going to save us from just pouring our own meaning into the Scripture? Well, that could happen. That could happen. People could just put all their own meanings in, but it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen that way. Go back to the yield to pedestrians example for a moment. Um, Drivers, that whole thing works. Because we all know what a yellow triangle means, right? We're taught that in driver's education. There's a standard, it's called the driver's manual, that tells you the definition of the symbol. So then when you see the symbol, you know what the meaning is. Drivers aren't going down the road seeing yellow triangles and making up on a driver-by-driver basis what they think yellow triangles should mean today, right? I think it means go fast because I'm late for work. Boom. No, you you don't get to do that. The symbol has a meaning, and you're expected to understand the meaning. And while it's not always completely the uh, case, we can't always be dogmatically certain of the exact meaning of every detail in Revelation. There's lots of room for discussion and debate. Nevertheless, it is true that in biblical prophetic imagery, we also have a guide as to what those symbols mean. And the guide is the Old Testament. The guide is the Old Testament. That actually leads us to the second feature of Revelation we want to talk about this morning. It's Old Testament connections. It's Old Testament connections. Back to verse 3 that we looked at just a moment ago. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this what? What's the word in your Bibles? Prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Notice how John, the author, the Apostle John, describes this as a book of prophecy. Uh, The book of Revelation takes almost all of its cues from the Old Testament. Prophets like Daniel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses, they are all over the book of Revelation, everywhere. Now, it doesn't just limit itself to what those guys previously said, but it often begins with what they said and then further develops their prophecies in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so the Apostle John is putting this book of Revelation that he's writing firmly in the stream of the Old Testament prophets. He's saying, essentially, I'm a latter-day prophet. I'm a New Testament prophet. I'm going to tell you what these prophets, prophecies mean in light of the fact that the Messiah has come, he's died for our sins, and he's risen from the dead to eternal life. Revelation positions itself squarely in the stream of Old Testament prophecy. And this is accomplished largely through allusions to the Old Testament, often not direct quotations. But John will allude to multiple images in the Old Testament and tie them together in new ways. Uh, Here's a little quick down facts and figures lane for the engineers and accountants amongst us. It'll help illustrate the point. I'll be quick here for those of you that aren't. Uh, (laughs) Revelation has 404 verses. Okay, in the entire book. Of that, Bible scholars estimate somewhere in the neighborhood of 278 allusions to Old Testament passages. That number can go up or down a little bit, but that's pretty much in the ballpark. Now, a little bit of quick math tells you that basically that's one allusion to the Old Testament every verse and a half from start to finish all the way throughout the book on average. Bottom line, there's a lot of Old Testament in this book. Okay, Compare this to 200 or less than 200 allusions and quotations of the Old Testament and all of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote half the New Testament and he's thoroughly grounded in the Old Testament when he does it. And yet he writes 13 books that have less than 200 allusions and quotations. John writes one book that has almost 300. What's the point? There is no book in the New Testament that has more overt connections to the Old Testament than the book of Revelation. There's an implication to this too. How does that inform the way that we read the book of Revelation? Well, I would suggest that has a significant influence on the way that we approach the book. It's not uncommon these days that people will open up the book of Revelation and read it and see an image or a prophecy or or a sign in the book with one hand and then sort of in the other hand proverbially pull out the newspaper and try to look at current events and see if the current events match the image or the symbol that we're seeing, the prophecy that we're seeing in the book of Revelation. I would suggest that the Old Testament, the the thorough nature of the Old Testament allusions in the book, which should cause us to look back, specifically back at the Old Testament, before we look anywhere in order to understand the image that John is putting before us, that God had put before him. And only then should we look at human history, either past, present, and future, in order to figure out the potential implications of that. The structure of the book of Revelation points us back to the Old Testament. So the question, what was the Old Testament image or images, and what did they mean in their day, those should be the first questions on our lips every time we see a new vision in Revelation being described. And so throughout this series, we're going to quickly, uh, constantly bounce back and forth to the Old Testament because it's exciting to see God take centuries of Old Testament prophetic revelation and pull it together in light of who Jesus is to tell us what our ultimate hope is and how we live as Christians today because of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Revelation is going to do. So summarize those two points, two things. First, we're reading Revelation, so get ready for loads of symbolism. Get ready for loads of symbolism. The symbols point to real-world realities, but the images themselves don't usually describe those realities in a woodenly, literal way. Secondly, look back at the Old Testament before we look forward into either modern, past, or future history. The prophets are our key. 
Now, with that in mind, we'll talk more, much more about those and hopefully demonstrate those as we go through the book. But, but let's turn the corner here and kind of head toward home this morning with some practical takeaways. We've talked a lot about the book of Revelation, but we haven't said anything yet about what's really in it. And while we're going to spend some time together, uh, we'll be the next you know, eight or nine months, we'll take a couple of significant breaks, so we won't be doing Revelation the entire time, but we're going to go through this book from start to finish, and we'll have lots of opportunity to see the content of the book. But this morning, I want a bottom line. Let's, let's jump all the way to the end and say, when you read this book and you study it, what do you come away from? And by the way, of all the differences of opinion that Christians have had about how to understand some of the specifics of Revelation, here's the great news. When you interpret it in the context of the Bible's narrative, you always come to the same core conclusions. The same core conclusions that I believe are here, scholars tell you is here, and virtually every Christian will tell you is here. We can all be encouraged by these things. I want to share at least three, with them, three of them with us briefly. What is the message of the book of Revelation? First, suffering for Jesus is the path to victory. You encouraged? <laughs> Initially, that doesn't sound very encouraging, but that's exactly the message, frankly, of the entire Bible, certainly in the New Testament. But it's not surprising then that we constantly encounter that in the book of Revelation. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 is just one of many uh, cross-references that we could use here where the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament book of Philippians to Christians, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. That's what you get for being a Christian. The privilege of believing in him and getting eternal life and the privilege of suffering for him. That's why we were saying earlier, to the cross I look, to the cross I cling, of its suffering I do drink and of its worth I do sing. Suffering for Jesus is to be expected if I am a Christian. If I am a Christian and I'm not suffering for Jesus somehow in some way over the course of my life, something is, is really out of whack. The norm in the Bible is that suffering for Jesus is the path to victory. You might think of it in these terms. This is an imperfect analogy. It breaks down, but it's potentially helpful at some point. I think here of, of an Olympic athlete. We just had the Olympics not long ago, so international competitions in my head. The path to the podium, every, every Olympian you know, starts with that dream of winning a medal or winning the gold medal. Well, the path to glory, the path to the podium, the path to having that golden disc around your neck and hearing your national anthem and the ultimate triumph, the path to the podium is through months and even in some cases years of sacrifice, pain, and self-denial. You give up things that you could have otherwise if you weren't an athlete. You train, you spend hours, you put your body through grueling punishment. And you deal with all the pain of that. Why? Because that's the path to the price. There's no shortcuts to the podium. If you don't train, other people will and they'll beat you. If you want to get the gold medal, you have to go through the dark pain first. And there's an analogy there to the Christian life. The path to eternal life goes through the path of suffering. Why? Because Revelation is going to pull back the, the, the cover, pull the cover off, so to speak, of the world and show us and remind us as Christians that as we're following Jesus, we are part of a cosmic, eternal battle that is going on in the spiritual realm. The book of Revelation challenges us as Christians not to compromise with a world that doesn't love Jesus. 
in order to escape some suffering in that world. Oh, and friends, that temptation is always there. That temptation is always there. It took specific forms in the first century churches to which this book of Revelation was written, and we'll allude to those as we go through this series. It may take slightly different forms today, but the temptation is always there. There is always a temptation from a culture or a value system or people or governments. It can come from all sorts of different places to say, if you Christians will just stop being Christianly in this area and this area, we'll give you a seat at the table. But as long as you persist in holding these backwater Bible beliefs, we will subject you to intense pressure, at least social pressure. And throughout history, there have been examples of legal pressure, physical pressure, financial pressure, and even the pressure of life and death that have been pressed in upon Christians by the world around them to get them to deny some aspect or another of biblical faith. And the Bible says, guys, expect it expect it and don't because you're expecting it don't cave to the pressure yes there may be a price that you have to pay in fact there almost certainly will be jesus himself said in john chapter 15 the world if the world hates you understand that it hated me first it's because i pulled you out of the world and made you part of my kingdom that the world hates you if you were still part of the world they would love you as your own but you're now mine and they hated me so they're going to hate you too he's framing our expectations and the book of revelation picks up on that It urges us not to compromise with a world that doesn't love Jesus in order to minimize a little bit of suffering. Very practically speaking, we alluded earlier to the fact that the influence of biblical Christianity on American culture continues to erode. That's probably not too much of a surprise to most of you. And many of the most foundational teachings of the Bible on issues like sexuality or gender or marriage or morality are being met with increasing hostility. And in the face of that, many Christians are tempted to waver. If, if we just minimize, not make such a big deal out of that stuff, or maybe even potentially be open to rethink what the Bible's teachings are on some of these issues then we'll stay out of the cultural crosshairs a while longer and we can just get back to preaching the gospel. We might stay out of the crosshairs for a little while longer. But Revelation urges Christians to hold fast to the path of our Savior and be willing to accept whatever consequences may come with equanimity and grace. Suffering is the path to glory. Secondly, God is sovereign in human history. God is sovereign in human history. Regardless of the different ways that Christians have interpreted some of the details of the book of Revelation, everyone understands that the main point is that Revelation vividly reinforces the ultimate victory of Jesus over sin, over Satan, and over death. That's been God's program all along since the very first chapters of the Bible. When sin entered the world, he said, I'm going to beat it. And as time goes on, it becomes apparent that he's going to beat it at his own cost. And then when Jesus comes, we finally see how. He beats it by becoming a man, suffering on the cross in our place, dying to pay the penalty for our sins, rising again to new life, and then inviting us into his family because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. His victory ultimately over sin, Satan, and death is secure. The death and resurrection of Jesus puts Satan in a checkmate. Hence, kind of the imagery we're using for this series. Because I think that's such a part of the book of Revelation. 
And again, I owe that image to Dr. Greg Beal in his commentary on Revelation. The death and resurrection of Jesus put Satan in a checkmate. There's still moves to be made. Jesus' kingdom is started. It's not yet fully here. There's still some things that Satan can do, but the, the ultimate outcome of the game has already been decided. And so he has called us to live in the midst of a world hostile to the gospel, extending the grace of God until the day when his final victory will be consummated. And it will be consummated because he is sovereign over human history. There are very specific applications to this as well. And let me just briefly mention that I think maybe the most significant is the warning not to look to human saviors. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Let me just mention three this morning. We can easily look to romantic saviors. A romantic savior is to say, you know, if I just get married, or if I'm married, if I just stay married, if I'm single, if I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, I'm a somebody because there's so much romance as a value in our culture. And if I'm not, if I'm single or if I'm not married, if I'm unhappily married, if I'm divorced, I'm a failure, I'm a nobody, we can so easily make the pursuit of a romantic relationship a source of salvation. I'm a somebody if I have it, I'm a nobody if I don't. Don't look to romantic saviors. There are medical saviors. Especially when we get sick or significantly ill. As long as there's another possible solution, something no matter how experimental that medical science can offer me, I have hope. But the minute the doctor tells me there's nothing left we can really do, it's only human. You feel your heart just crash. That emotional reaction is very understandable. But the Bible encourages us to put that emotional sinking into the context of understanding that no doctor is really my savior. As fabulous as the results and the advances of modern medical science are, praise God for it. We're delighted to be sending a lot of medical professionals to Haiti this next week to use some of modern medicine to make a positive difference in people's lives. It's a wonderful thing. But doctors in modern medicine are not our ultimate savior. God is sovereign over human history. Finally, we have political saviors, don't we? Secular people and religious people alike can easily fall into the trap of thinking that if we just win a few of the right elections or pass a few of the right measures or get the right uh, organization in the U.S. Congress or on the Supreme Court or, or down in Salem or whatever it is, you know, then, whoo, we finally will have saved civilization. But if the wrong people win, you know, everything's falling apart and we'll be a third world country by this time next year. I'm not trying to mock political involvement as I've already prayed earlier. I urge us to be involved in understanding the issues and being involved in voting, especially if you're legally registered to vote. And if you're legally eligible to vote, not registered, register (laughs) and vote. But we don't participate looking for political saviors. You see, the point of saying that God is sovereign is that there is only one savior who is sovereign over human history. We won't find him on any dating website We won't find him in any doctor's office. And he doesn't show up on anybody's ballot. So even as we engage in all these things because we are in this world, we are not of this world. We put our hope in the sovereignty of Jesus, which leads me to our third and final point. We've already touched on it. God will bring his long-promised plan to completion. In the final analysis, that's really what the book of Revelation is ultimately telling us. 
And again, every Christian who takes the Bible seriously and reads this book understands that that's the main point. Even though some of the images and the symbols and the structure of the book are confusing and we can discuss and disagree and debate on how to put it all together, the bottom line outcome is the same. God will bring his long-promised plan to defeat sin, Satan, and death. He will bring it to fruition. He will bring it to fruition. And those who continue to put their faith and trust in him and refuse to trust in lesser saviors will benefit from that. As we turn toward home here, I'd like to read a little bit of the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation just so we can hear the word of God read. Starting in Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is a vision of God's perfect plan finally accomplished in the future. God will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you cried this week? There's your hope. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Because the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus in context, said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, that is, perseveres in their faith till the end, will have this heritage. I will be his God. And he will be my son. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There was a lot of symbolism even in what we just read, but the image is clear, is it not? Friends, that's our hope. That's our hope. And we will be blessed if we keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Keeping those words means at least don't compromise your devotion to Christ in order to minimize or avoid suffering. Don't place your hope in human saviors. 
And live your life in light of eternity. Live today for the day that Jesus makes all things new. If we live this way, we will be blessed. Friends, we've got a cool opportunity this morning to receive communion together. We regularly do this twice a month at Harvest. Jesus 